It's so good to see you today. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Today, um, I told you, I guess, two weeks ago, I did a little bit of teachy and then preachy. Um, today, I'm going to con- kind of combine some vision within the sermon, okay? Uh, so if you're wondering where we're headed, uh, this text sets us up well to have that discussion. So you're going to hear a little bit about who we are as a church, where we're headed as a church. Um, it's not going to be um, as painted for you as vividly as you would probably like. You're going to have to read between the lines a little bit uh, this morning because what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick to the text. However, you're going to see that what we want is to be shaped and formed by the text so that we can become who God ultimately wants us to be. Okay, so that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to be back in the book of Acts, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. That is the fifth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. But as you're turning there, I want you to begin pondering and thinking about this question. When you came to church this morning, and the reason I put that in parentheses, when you came to the church gathering this morning, that's what's happening here at 11 o'clock, when you came to the church gathering this morning, what did you expect? What did you expect? When you woke up this morning, decided to put on some clothes, for some of you moms, you decided to wrangle the kids together, right? You got the family together, you jumped in the car, and you drove and pulled in this parking lot, walked into this room. What did you expect? What did you expect? If you're anything like me, I grew up, uh, really, between a Methodist and a Baptist church, okay? I went to a Methodist church. I was even an acolyte, whatever that means, but I was one. I had a pen to prove it. I was an acolyte in the Methodist church. I went to a Baptist church, but both of those churches were more traditional in approach, okay? So when I went to church, there was a certain expectation. I wore my Sunday's best. I saw some smiling faces. I listened to a clever sermon. Sometimes it was centered on the word, sometimes not. But I listened to a sermon, and then I would go home, if not go to lunch, and then go home. There was a certain expectation. Not until I got married to my wife in 2009, she became an assistant to a local pastor in town. We started going to that church, and it was much different than anything I had ever experienced. Okay, I walked in, and the room was dark. And not only was the room dark, when I finally found my seat, I looked around and there were songs that were being sung about Jesus. And from the looks of it, people were actually engaged in what they were actually saying. But as I continued to observe the room, because this was all new to me, I I thought, man, this is weird because what you have is a bunch of people, their mouths are moving, but they look like they're falling asleep. Their eyes are closed. And then if you kept watching, it was like getting even weirder because there was a lot of people who were wanting to ask questions. (laughs) Their hands were raised. And I was thinking, well, this is weird. They're wearing jeans. Some of them are wearing shorts and flip-flops. But in their worship, they're falling asleep and they're wanting to ask questions. That's not what I was expecting. But when you came this morning, I want to ask you again, what did you expect. Maybe for you, you expected to see some smiling faces of people who believed in God. Maybe you came expecting to hear some music that was about God. Maybe you expected to hear a sermon that was centered around God. But what did you expect? See, expectation is something that all of us have. We all have expectations. And when those expectations are not met, 
we either become frustrated, annoyed, right? Some of us get annoyed because of, uh, of expectation that's not met. Or we just simply say, you know what, I'm going to give up. Throw in the towel, I'm done. One of the dangers of expectation, especially in the light of the church, is that nowadays you have access to things that previous generations did not have access to. And what I mean by that is you get to hear some of the most gifted men homiletically preach through podcasts, through YouTube videos, through the website. You can go to any pastor in America or across the globe and you can hear them preach. And they are the most gifted men, some of you will naturally engage, the most gifted men homiletically, if not the most gifted men her hermeneutically. You'll go and you'll listen to them. And if you're not careful, they'll become your pastor. And your pastor's voice is silenced, and their voice grows louder. Also, some of you, you know that there are churches maybe here in the Atlanta area, maybe north of us, maybe south of us, but they're within driving distance if you go to those churches, they dump a bunch of resources into their Sunday morning production. And that's what it is, a Sunday morning production. They put thousands upon thousands of dollars into making sure that the music is the best of the best. And in fact, they hire some of the best musicians on the face of the earth to come and lead them in that manner. And to addition, in addition to that, they hire the dump resources into the best production crew. So that if you watch it from home you're engaged and want to be in the building. So it's all about an experience that happens on Sunday morning. And all of a sudden, you start putting those expectations on the church that maybe you're a part of, a member of, maybe us, maybe somewhere else if you're watching online. See, expectations can be dangerous because what happens is you replace your pastor's voice with a voice who's not your pastor. Is it good that you listen to other sermons? Absolutely. Some of us would encourage that. I would certainly encourage that. In fact, one of the triggers of my spiritual growth was listening to, uh, at that time, it was cassette tapes and CDs um, from some of my favorite preachers. So I'm not discouraging that at all. What I am saying, though, is that was never intended to be the church. The church was never intended to be governed that way. The church was never to be in, intended to be led that way. In fact, if you remember week one, we defined the church not as a gathering of God people, of God's people on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. We defined the church as a movement of God. In fact, I'm going to go further this morning to say that you are the church. And when you leave this building this morning, the church is going with you because you are the church. The church was never intended to be a place built of brick and mortar. The church was intended to be a people who were regenerate in heart, baptized by immersion, and were on mission with God. That's what the church was intended to be. So you are the church. We have these different expectations, and we're going to talk about that here in Acts chapter 2. For those of you who are here for the first time, one, we're glad you're here. We are certainly glad that you are here, but if you haven't heard the past three weeks' sermons as we're kind of just jumping into Acts chapter 2, I'm going to catch you up a little bit on what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, this is what church history would define as the birth of the church, okay? So this is the birth of the church. This is the church at its inception. Now, those of you who are more theological in approach, that are probably more mature in your faith, those of you who are like that, you know that the church was born back in the days of Abraham, okay? We get that, but church history would say that this is the, the birth of the church as far as you and I know it. So here we are in Acts chapter 2. This is the spirit 
filled church. This church is uncorrupted. This is the purest form of the church. It's at its inception. I like to say it this way. That Acts chapter 2, the Holy, the, the, that church had Holy Spirit swag, okay? Because the Holy Spirit was all over this church. When the men and the women of Acts chapter 2 would gather, in fact, these men and women, they had no expectations. They didn't have podcasts to listen to. They didn't have YouTube channels to go and check out. They didn't have conferences that they could attend. They didn't have books that they could read to figure out what the best church growth model was and how church should look going forward. They didn't have any of those resources available to them. So my question to you is much like me is when I grew up in my faith and when I started to understand the importance of who the church is and how the church is is supposed to function, what I learned is that when I start going to church, if you will, the only expectation I should have is to expect God. It's to expect God. And then my pastor won't have to live up to an unrealistic expectation. The music, the worship, won't have to live up to an unrealistic expectation. My preferences then would be met every time I came because I don't have an expectation of what kind of songs we should sing and what kind of songs we shouldn't and how, how they should be sung, if they should be sung out of a book or if they should be sung off the screen. All my preferences would be buried because the only expectation I have is to meet with God. And the same thing is true with you. In Acts chapter 2, these men and women, they had one expectation and that expectation was God and God alone. My question to you this morning, right out of the gate, really is this, is do you come with one singular expectation to church? And that singular expectation being, I'm coming to meet with God. Do you come with that expectation? I want to throw this out to you because I do think sometimes we get it confused. Acts chapter 2 was not a group of all-star Christians, What I mean by they were not a group of all-star Christians is these men and women weren't the best of the best, the elite of the Christian people that all got together and became devoted in their following of Jesus. They weren't all-star Christians. I know what happens is what we try to do is excuse why we don't have to be devoted to the church because we don't live in the same time frame as the first century believers. And what I mean by that is we say, well, the first century believers, they didn't have travel ball. Of course, they could be devoted to church. The first century believers, they didn't have summer houses and, and lake homes and oceanfront, whatever. So, so, of course, they could be devoted to church. You follow what I'm, I'm saying there? We make these excuses for why we are, are not devoted to the church, which is what Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is going to call us to do in just a moment. But what I want you to know is that these men and women, just through the sincere empowerment of the Holy Spirit, understood that they need to be affectionately committed and devoted to God's people. So that's where we're headed this morning, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read two verses of scripture today. I'm going to read verse 42, verse 47, and then we're going to come back and look at this entire text next week together, okay? So that's kind of what we're doing today. You're going to hear a lot of the same things this week and next week. We felt like it was enough and important enough to be redundant a little bit here, so we are going to cover this text in its entirety next week. Today, we're just looking at two verses of scripture, verse 42 and verse 47. It says this in verse 42. And they, talking about the disciples of Jesus, talking about the men and women who were in that group when the Holy Spirit came down upon them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So that word devoted that I used a moment ago is right here in Scripture. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and forth 
and the prayers. I look at verse 47. It says this. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. By show of hands, how many of you would like to be a part of something where the Lord added day by day those who were being saved? I would. Most of us in this room say we would. Okay, so here's the deal. It's going to require that you and I become devoted. It's going to require that we allow the word of God to shape and to form and to fashion the individual lives that just rose their hand. And we're going to see what characteristics that made them become a people where the Lord would add to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to notice first this phrase where it says they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. When the Spirit falls upon them, the first thing the Bible tells us is that these men and women devoted themselves. Now, if I'm honest with you, the word devoted has become extremely diluted today, has it not? The word devoted has become extremely diluted today. Why would you say that, Trey? Because you and I, and I'm not knocking this, I think it's a healthy practice. I do it. That's why I'm including myself, and some of you do it. You and I, what we do is we wake up in the morning, and we take these bite-sized little paragraphs of, of writing that are usually accompanied by a verse that we don't usually typically read. And we call it a devotion. And we do a devotion, and because we do a devotion in the morning, we think we're devoted. But what would happen if I told you this morning that this Greek word devoted actually carries more weight than someone who just gets up and reads about seven sentences and doesn't read the verse that goes with it? What would, I t what would you do this morning if I told you that the Greek word here actually has an entire different meaning than what we can make up in our English vocabulary? Here's what I'm saying about this. I want you to consider the weights of this word. The word in Greek would actually mean to be affectionately committed. You could scratch devoted out. You could put affectionately committed. They were affectionately committed to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to the prayers. One translation, maybe your translation, says that they continued steadfastly in those things. These were things that occupied their time. These were things that occupied any space that was given in their lives. In fact, the best English word to describe what, what Luke meant by devoted here is the word obsessed. It's the word obsessed. Now, well, the first thing that comes to your mind, if you're anything like me, when you hear the word obsessed is some horrific movie that you've probably seen on Netflix, right? Where some guy was obsessed over some girl or girl over some guy and it was just a nightmare. That's not what's happening here, okay? The word obsessed by mere definition, it means something that dominates your thoughts. It means something that dominates your desires. It's when you think about something unceasingly. It's when your mind is so fixed on something that it's hard to think about anything else. You're obsessed when you're so focused on something that you cannot focus on anything else. Now listen, the best people who can understand the difference between obsession and devotion are Georgia Bulldog fans. They're Georgia Bulldog fans. See, a devoted Georgia Bulldog fan, I'm one of them, okay, so I'm throwing myself under the table here too. I'm one of them. A devoted fan, he's going to get up on Saturday and he's going to put his game attire on, Right? And if he's superstitious, what's going to happen is the same shirt that he wore last week because they won last week, he's going to have to wear this week, or otherwise they might lose, right? So he gets up and he puts his game attire on, and if they play at 3.30, 
A devoted fan is going to be at home in front of the TV making sure everything works by 3 o'clock. Because you don't miss pregame, and you certainly don't miss kickoff if you're a devoted fan. So wives, there's the excuse for your husbands why he needs to be home before kickoff. And a devoted fan is going to watch every single snap of every single game, and the game is not over until he's heard Kirby on the post-game press conference talk about his win, okay, and what they need to improve, because that's what he always does. That's a devoted fan. Now, an obsessed fan looks entirely different. An obsessed fan, if you walk into their wardrobe, it's full of Georgia Bulldog gear, right? They wear Georgia stuff on Sunday to church. They wear Georgia, not, not talking about you, he's got a Georgia shirt on back there. Not talking about him. All right, he's an exception to the rule. But a Georgia fan, they wear it Sunday to church, they wear it Monday, they wear it Tuesday, they wear it Wednesday, and then they wake up on Thursday and they start painting their body red and black. Did you do that Thursday? All right, you're good, you're good. All right, so, so they start painting their body red and black. And then on Friday morning, they're camping out in front of Sanford Stadium, right? Because they're not going to be the last one in the stadium. They're going to be the first one in the stadium. They're going to get in the stadium, and they're going to steal someone's pom-pom because they're ready to wave it, right? And then they're going to also bark on all four legs like a D-A-W-G dog, right? That's an obsessed fan. It's all they think about. What occupies their time. This is what Luke is saying about us as the church here in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit filled them, he made them devoted to God. He made them devoted to one another. Their hearts and their minds were so full of the gospel of Jesus that they were starving. Yet they were starving for so much more. They were walking through the scriptures and learning about God. And, and they, were, they were being consumed and full of who he is. And it caused them to want so much more. This morning, I want to show you a quick formula for becoming a spirit-filled church. Quick formula for becoming a spirit-filled church. In other words, this is the question I'm answering. What made this church in Acts chapter 2 tick? What made them who they are? What characteristics can we adopt from them so that we can become a church like them? There's three undeniable characteristics of a spirit-filled church. The first one is this. They were intimate with God. They were intimate with God. What do you mean by intimacy? What do I mean by intimacy? I mean this, experiencing the nearness of God. These men and women, they wanted to be near to the Lord. They wanted to walk with him and talk with him and commune with him on a daily basis. This was important to them. They wanted intimacy with God. Intimacy with God is just essentially like wanting to get to know God on a deeper level. You're not satisfied with the surface. You want to dig in Scripture. You want to know more. And the more you learn, the more you want to know. And you're just constantly going back to it and digging and digging and digging inside of the Word of God, getting to know Him. That's what I mean by intimacy. There's two ways that they were intimate with God. The first one, the Bible says, they were intimate with God through the Word. They were intimate with God through the Word. Look at what it says in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. Some of your translations say they devoted themselves to doctrine. They devoted themselves to doctrine. Now listen, if we're honest this morning, the average church attender doesn't bat an eye at good biblical doctrine. In fact, they get bored by good biblical doctrine. This might be why the church at large is so anemic. It's because the people of God don't truly want to know who God is and how God operates. So what we need as a church, not just Eagles Landing, but I'd say the church everywhere, what we need is an infusion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we as a church 
have added to our mission statement, I told you this last year, that we're a gospel-centered church that exists for. Why? Not because we think gospel-centered is cute and clever. It's because every single thing we want to do, we want to make sure it is infused with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want our people to ever grow bored with the reality that Jesus died in their place for their sin. And because he's resurrected out of the grave, that now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't ever want you to get bored with that. In fact, we want you to grow more and more in love with that reality. So what is meant here by the apostles' teaching? You might remember this, uh, this goes back to Luke chapter 24, uh, the last chapter of the book of Luke. Jesus appeared to his disciples. He appeared to them after he had resurrected from the grave. And do you remember what he said to them? The first thing he said in verse 27, it says he interpreted to them all things in Scripture concerning who? Concerning himself. Jesus was teaching the disciples about who he is and what he had accomplished. A few verses later, verse 45, he says he opened their minds to understand what? To understand the scriptures. See, the men and women of Luke chapter 24, they didn't have the New Testament like you and I do to cling to, to learn who Jesus is and how he fulfilled all these promises. They were dependent on the Old Testament. But here's what's so fascinating about this. They saw Jesus just as much in the Old Testament as you and I see him in the New Testament. And they started to make sense of all of it as the Spirit of God brought this to the forefronts of their minds. It's amazing what they were seeing. These men and women, they were seeing that Jesus truly is a truer and greater Moses who stands in the gap between sinful humanity and the Lord. They were seeing that Jesus truly is a truer and greater Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now attributed to us. They see that Jesus was the truer and greater Abraham who answered the call of God to leave comfort and convenience, right, and to enter into the unknown to create a people that were for God. They saw that Jesus was a truer and greater Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but Jesus was truly sacrificed there for us so that we could be reconciled to God. They saw that Jesus was a truer and greater David whose victory becomes his people's victory. And I love how Keller puts it, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish that victory themselves. And as they walked through every single character of the Old Testament, they were seeing how these men, how these women were pointing to the life and resurrection of King Jesus. I want you to know that as you do that and as you learn how these, how, how many of you have ever read the Jesus Storybook? A little book that's really for your elementary kids or below. But one of the greatest uh, things I have done as a father is read the Jesus Storybook to my kids every night. Because what it does for you is it allows you to see Jesus in all the stories. I'm telling you, it's a kid's book, but it's so fascinating when you walk away from reading a story and how it points to Jesus, you're just like, wow, that was glitter in the text. Like, it was like, whoa, I want to know more. I want to learn more. And that's what's happening here in the book of Acts. These men are figuring this out. They're seeing the dots connected, and they just can't get enough. They want more, and they want more, and they want more. Let me say it this way, church family. I think we all need to hear this this morning. I know I need to hear it this week. I hope that you need to hear this as well. Listen, the Holy Spirit's presence leads us to an obsession with the Holy Spirit's book. When the Holy Spirit has the freedom to rule and to reign in your life, 
it will lead you to want to read the Word of God. Why? Because this is where the Holy Spirit speaks. The Spirit of God does not speak outside of the Scriptures of God. And He wants you to go there so that He can hear, you can hear His voice. What I find so fascinating about my relationship with Jesus and what I think some of you have found fascinating about your relationship with Jesus is this. That this book that used to sit on a shelf to collect dust or maybe in the back seat of my car and collect Polynesian sauce that fell off the fry, right? This book now has become the most treasured possession of my soul. And I want to read it. I want, I want to understand it. I want to memorize portions of it. And I want to see the God that I worship on every single page. See, the Holy Spirit, his presence leads us to an obsession with his book. So they are intimate with God through the word. Secondly, they are intimate with God through prayer. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers. Okay? Prayer is a way that we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Remember that in Luke chapter 24. When Jesus said, wait, you understand that these disciples could have done anything under the sun. <laughs> they just had to wait. They could wait and play Yahtzee, right? They could wait and play tic-tac-toe in the sand. They could wait and build homes. They could wait and do a, a number of different things. But what did they do when God told them to wait? They prayed. The disciples of Jesus understood when God said, when Jesus said, wait, that meant pray. You've heard it said before, that when you ask God through prayer for something, he usually answers you in one of three ways. Yes, no, or Wait. Your waiting is intended to lead you to keep praying, to keep coming to the Father, to be persistent, to always ask and to never give up. It's interesting how that works. If he says yes, you just take the, the blessing, the gift, and you move on. He says no, you just mourn and grieve a little bit, close the chapter, and move on. But if he says wait, that's where it gets difficult. That's where it gets hard. That's where you have to be still. That's where you have to keep listening. And that's where you have to keep praying. And what Jesus does, he says, I want you to grow intimate with me through your prayers. Think about this. The early church was obsessed with prayer. Some commands that the believers, that are for believers in Scripture. If you remember 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it says what? Pray without ceasing. That sounds like an obsession, doesn't it? I mean, unceasing prayer? That means I have to have my mind so fixed and so focused on prayer that I can't do anything else. Now, that's the posture of our heart. We understand that. doesn't literally mean that all you do is act like a monk, close yourself in a room, and just pray all day. That's not what it means. It means that through the regular rhythms of your life that you're in an attitude, a posture of prayer at all times. Now, another verse, Romans 12, 12, it says what? Be constant in prayer always. Again, sounds extremely obsessive. That I would be a man or a woman characterized by being constant in prayer. And if that wasn't enough, he adds that word, always. Again, because there's, there's something we, we, God wants to teach us through that. Now here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Why were they obsessed with prayer? Were they obsessed with prayer because when they asked for things, God gave, them, gave, gave those things to them? No. They were obsessed with prayer. Because when they went to God in prayer, they got to experience intimacy with him that they didn't experience if they weren't in prayer with him. See, prayer drives us to know the heart of God deeper and deeper 
and deeper. So they were intimate with God in two ways, through Bible reading and through prayer. How are you doing in Bible reading and prayer this morning? The second thing I want you to see real quick, and we're going to start summing this up. The second thing is this. They were involved with one another. They were intimate with God. They were involved with one another. Two words I want you to see in the middle of Acts 2, verse 42. It says this. They were devoted not only to the apostles' teaching, but to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And then the prayers. Fellowship, by definition, means sharing. And it means more than sharing possession. It actually means sharing life. It means togetherness. It means my life that God has given me, I'm going to share it with the body of Christ. Now, if you go to the words breaking of bread, this was a common meal that they took together as a body that culminated in the Lord's Supper. But again, the emphasis here is on togetherness. So they did life with each other. They took, that, they took that as a priority. Some of us take personal relationship with God to, an, to a level that God never intended us to take it. Your relationship, your personal relationship with God should never be so personal, personal that it's in isolation. You need God's people in your life. And we have set the context and the stage for that, for you to be in a life group here. Because in that life group, if you asked us, what is the win of a life group? It's not that you go for 45 minutes and listen to someone lecture you, get a good lecture or sermon or, you know, whatever, Bible study. It's not, that's not the win for us. It's not. And our life group leaders are, are learning this. The win for us is that we see community happening in those groups. That not only are they coming together on Sunday morning at 9.30, or if you meet on Monday night at 6.30, or Tuesday night at 7, or Wednesday night, whenever you meet, not only are you coming together for that one hour, but all of a sudden, you're starting to live life with the people in that group because it's through the regular rhythms of life that real discipleship starts to happen. Think about it. The closer someone gets to you, seeing you outside the context of this environment, the more they start to understand and see the real you, not the you that you pretend to be. And as they start to see the real you, they can start speaking scripture into the real you so that you can become, you can become and conform to, to the person that Christ wants you to be. He uses each other to make us more like himself. So people, what we need to understand is people all over the place are looking for a place that they can belong. You know that? If, you have, if you're a guest here, that's usually what people are looking for, is a place they can become like Christ and a place that they can belong. This experience relationship. You were created for a relationship. You are created for that. So we look to each other to find those relationships. We need those relationships, but people are looking for a place they can belong. Life group is a family that you can belong to. It's a community where you can feel safe and not judge. It's a place where people can genuinely get to know the real you. One phrase that you hear us say all the time around here is that we grow together as a family. This is one of our four core values. We grow together as a family. What does that actually mean, that we grow together as a family? What we mean by that is actually rooted here in the word fellowship in Acts 2.42. That word fellowship at its core has biblical hospitality. Do you know what biblical hospitality is? Biblical hospitality is when you invite a stranger into your home as if they're a family member. That's exactly what God did with us. You and I, because of our sin, were strangers to him. We were strangers to him. And God invites us through the work of Jesus Christ into his family. And when we become a part of his family, 
we are treated as sons and daughters of God. And the same thing is true for us. We have to invite the stranger into our homes so that they can become a part of our family. Think about how you treat family. Family doesn't go without food, do they? You make sure that your family's needs are met. Family doesn't go without shelter. Family doesn't suffer alone. Family loves loud and family loves hard. And listen, church, when you love loud, when you love hard, you also run the risk of getting hurt. I'm sure most of you have learned this by now. If you haven't, you're going to. Church people will hurt you. Happens everywhere. Why? Because church people are sinful people. They're broken people. They're in pursuit of Christ. They're conforming to the image of Christ. But church people will hurt you. And you do run the risk of being hurt when you love people loud, when you love people the way that God has loved you. But just like family, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. What happens in the family of God is we recognize who we are before God, and we recognize that our sin is just adding up. It adds up every single day. It doesn't give us a card to go for and see, uh, to freely sin, but we see that sin more clear every single day of our lives. And what we are told in Scripture is that the grace of God abounds much more than our sin. There's more grace. We cannot outsin the grace of God. And when we become products of that, what happens is even when someone hurts us, we're quick to forgive rather than hold a grudge over their head, or we should be. Or when we offended someone, we're quick to go get it right rather than to go gossip and tell everybody else about it. And that's what a family does. A family does family business God's way. We go to each other, we talk with each other, we work things out, we move on, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the family of God. This is what we do in our relationships with one another. There are 59 to 60 one another verses in your Bible. We'll go through that a different day at a different time. But there's a third and a final thing I want to show you this morning, characteristic that we need to heed, and that is this. They were imparting the gospel to the world. This church was imparting the gospel to the world. It tells us that the Lord was adding to their number day by day. It tells us that they had favor with the people in their community. They had favor with the people in their world. They were imparting the gospel to the world. The people in the community saw the way that the church was being the church, and they thought, man, I want to be a part of that. That's different than what I see at work. That's different than what I see in my neighborhood. That's different than what I see on the news. That's different than what I see in the culture around us. It's so countercultural and it's so attractive that I want to be a part of that. When the church was the church, the Bible says the Lord started adding to their number. Something that you and I need to understand is that we must show and we must tell the world who Jesus is. See, church family, something that you and I need to understand is that the church was never intended to be a spectator sport. And when you invest thousands of dollars into making sure your Sunday morning experience is exactly that, a Sunday morning experience, it becomes a spectator event. You get people who show up at Sunday at 11 o'clock and all you're ever gonna get out of them and all they're ever gonna be is a spectator watching a good show. But when you look through the pages of scripture, that's not who the church was supposed to be. 
The church was a body of believers who had Christ as its head and who contributed to the life of the church. They didn't spectate, they participated in the work of God. And they realized if a movement's ever going to get started, it's not because of a production that we put on on Sunday, it's gonna get started because I'm out there living on mission every single day of the week. That I'm a member, a man, a woman, who's so infatuated with King Jesus that I can't help but point my neighbors and the nations to him as king. That's how the movement gets started. See, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about the church corporately. We're talking about the church individually. As I said, you are the church. There is nothing like the church when the church is unleashed. Let me say that differently. There is nothing like you when you are unleashed. There's nothing like you. There's nothing like me when we take the personal call of being who God wants us to be seriously. Nothing like that. A church unleashed is a church that impacts the culture around them. My question to you this morning is, are you impacting the culture around you? Child of God, does your neighborhood look different because you live in it? Child of God, does your workplace look different because God called you to work there? Businessman, businesswoman, do the people that you do business with, are they, are they changed and transformed because God called you to the job that you do? Moms, dads, does your home look different because you're following Jesus? Athletes, people in theater, band, the groups that you associate yourselves with, do they look any different because you're there? The way you know that you're being the church is because you see that the environments that God puts you in are being transformed for God's glory as a result of you being there. My question to you is this, will you put your yes on the table and let God be God in every environment in your life? Will you let him be God? If Eagles Landing is gonna impact this community, it's because the members of Eagles Landing take serious who the church is supposed to be. And if Eagles Landing is gonna plant 300 churches in the next 30 years, it's only because we have men and women who get so infatuated with King Jesus that they can't think of doing anything else than selling their lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, in many ways, this is a time, a season in our life where we have to decide who we want to be. Do we wanna be obsessed with Jesus? Or do we want to continue to flirt with the distractions of the world? God, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the call of God on all of our lives to be the men and the women that you want us to be. Would you help us, God, become more and more infatuated with you? Would you help us surrender every area of our life over to you? And would you help us recognize that the community of God's people that you want for us, you can't get through online church? Lord, you didn't intend for this just to be a, an experience. You intended for us to be a movement, a movement where you did your work through us in a watching world. So help us, God, play our role in that movement. It's in Jesus' name we pray.